This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So by now you've probably seen the videos of the coyote killing contests. They were put out by an individual called Philippe Andrade. Philippe is a Nat Geo explorer, conservationist, films for Netflix, has been all around the world, passionate wildlifer, passionate conservationist, and just a very excitable guy. And we had a conversation. We had a conversation of wildlife, the love for wildlife, a conversation between a non-hunter, Philippe, and me as a hunter. We talked about ethos, we talked about character, we talked about does it help or hurt hunting, what you see out there in social media space. And naturally, we dug into his film, why he made it. Was it truthful? Was it not? Was it sensationalist? Was it full of emotion instead of speaking the truth? This conversation is certainly going to make you think. If you're a hunter, that's a good thing. 
If you are a non-hunter, I hope you take the truth as well and can see what the majority of hunters are trying to do right now. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's, but, and honestly, man, I, I appreciate that. And, and just so you know, that's a hundred percent where I'm coming from, from this as well. And I want to thank you for reaching out because ultimately I think if anybody that is passionate about the natural world that cares about the challenges that we're up against, it's more about sitting down and having conversations and realizing that there's a lot more we have in common than what actually we believe separates us. 1000%. And I think that's the key, right? Is that hunters, and I'm a hunter, loves wildlife. I absolutely love wildlife and I want to see more of it. And I want to have my kids to be able to see it one day. And I want my grandkids to be able to see it one day. But there are certain individuals that do not have the same respect that I have for wildlife uh, in our cadre. Um, but I think that's the case in every cadre and in every lifestyle that there are certain bad apples in the bunch that you just don't know how to deal with them, right? It's almost like, how, anyway, you know, you hear what I'm yeah. saying. Well, no, I do. And, and, and look, you're right about that on both sides. You know, I myself um, am not a hunter, although I spear fish and I fish for my own food, you know, whenever I can and as often as I can, because that's the preferred method. Um, I'll be honest, and it's kind of interesting, you know, I, I don't know if anybody knows who I am right off the bat or, you know. I tend to do point. a terrible job of introducing people. So Felipe, right? Philippe. Philippe, Philippe D'Andrade. Yeah. Philippe D'Andrade, but don't, don't worry if you I don't get it right. I messed up both of them. Damn don't, it. Hey, my mom calls me Philippe's. That sounds like something you catch on spring break. You know, how is Cabo? I came back with Philippe's. It burns when you pee. So don't get it wrong. You're not the only one. If my mom is messing it up, yeah, I'll give you a pass. So go ahead and introduce yourself. So, um, okay, I guess, uh, how do I do that? Well, I'm a National Geographic Explorer and wildlife enthusiast essentially. And what that means is I love to absorb any and all living specimens, any and all living creatures. You know, I was born in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Whoa, whoa, know. whoa, whoa. Time out. Time out. You know that I was born in Rio too? Are you serious? Yeah. Wait, uh, no, I had no idea. Roberto Tiramici. Ah, um falo português. Um falo. Um pouquinho. And so that, that explains a lot, actually. South Africa is my absolute favorite country in the world. And when I landed in Cape Town, I felt this kind of surge of energy and, and life charisma that I hadn't felt since my early days running around in a diaper thong in Rio de Janeiro, you know? So that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I had no idea. So anyways, yeah, so I was born in Brazil and my work lately, you know, I graduated college in 2018 or 2013 from the University of Florida, where I studied film and wildlife ecology and conservation. And since 2015, I just kind of got thrown into the fire with Nat Geo and I've traveled, you know, it feels like all over the world with them. And in fact, my first assignment was in Africa. I got to go to six different countries. You know, I started in Botswana in the Okavanga Delta. You know, it, it's like modern day Jurassic Park. It's, you know, I've referred to it as mother nature's birth canal because it's where life comes out of, you right. know, and then I got right. to go to South Africa and yeah. So I believe I'm a conservationist at heart and that comes from having a passion for all things wild. Well, we, there's 
I don't believe that this will be the last conversation we have because my favorite dish in the whole wide world is feijoada. <laughs> and my wife makes feijoada. Uh, wow. She also makes the most amazing her. 365. You got to uh, keep her. Creme de caramel. Um, and the Okavango swamps is where I was taken when I was 16 years old. Wow. That made me decide to become a swamp ecologist. So I have a PhD in aquatic biogeochemistry and wetland ecology. And my passion in life is wetlands and swamps and restoration ecology. Um, so that's why I'm in this country. That's why I'm privileged to be an American citizen. It all came from the Okavango Delta and to now me being, you know, who I am today. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And I understand. So that's funny. Yeah, man, there's a lot of ties there. And I actually, you know, as a film student and ecology student, uh, the Everglades, you know, was essentially where I got my feet wet. And so, you know, working with the invasive species, the, the pythons down there and everything from tagging uh, crocodiles, you know, the, the 2000 or so that remain down there. Um, yeah, the Everglades is, in my opinion, the best kept secret in the United States. And as you as a wetland ecologist, I'm sure can attest to how wonderful, even though it's not, it doesn't have that postcard vibe the way a Yellowstone or, mm -hmm. you know, Yosemite or Denali might, it's, mm -hmm. it's got every bit of just raw, real, you know, ecology. Jurassicness. Oh man. It's, it's Jurassicness. Yeah, it, you, you get bit the first time you go there and, and the scars never go away because I, you know, I really fell in love with that place more so than any other place in the States. 100%, 100%. So today is a day job. Uh, you create content, you create films for different clients, Nat Geo being one of your clients, Netflix, I think you told me is one of your clients. Yeah, so I, I shoot primarily for National Geographic. I have two Explorer grants with them. Uh, one, we're implementing environmental education into the country of Costa Rica. So I believe that, you know, I, I hiked the Appalachian Trail. And when I did that, and this is why I'm bringing this up, is because everybody would ask me, what happens if you get bit by a bear or a rattlesnake? Or what happens if you get hypothermia? Or what happens if you hear the dueling banjos coming and you're in tent in the middle of the <laughs> night and no one else is around to save you? You know, that deliverance reference. And I try to tell people prevention is key you know, prevention, prevention, prevention. I don't want to find out how I'm going to respond in those, you know, tiptoey situations. I want to prevent those situations from happening. And why I'm bringing that up is because I believe that education and specifically environmental and conservation education is the key to prevent a lot of the, you know, mistakes that we're making as a, as a species, us being humans. And so I saw an opportunity to implement environmental education into the entire country of Costa Rica. And we're going to make it the first country in the world where kids, you know, you've got kids and you always, you know, I think you call them savages, you know, imagine you're savages learning in school, you know, the way ecosystems work and the history of conservation, of hunting, of implementation, of reintroducing species. It's in my opinion, as important as learning math, science, history, language, as playing and running around. So we're looking to do that in Costa Rica. And then I've also, I'm on a grant uh, with Beneath the Waves working with tiger sharks in Bahamas. So that's where most of my work is right now. And then I shoot for Netflix, for Disney, you know, and then um, this last project and why we got introduced, uh, this was something that I felt passionate about. And I kind of started, you know, the fundraising through private donations and individuals and um, got support from National Geographic to, to do what we're, I guess, going to get to at some point in this conversation. Oh, sure. <laughs> well, let's, uh, what I want to do is I've got to, I want to set the scene. 
I want to ask some, some pointed questions. Um, and then I want to sort of peel some of the onion layers back on issues, on thoughts, on uh, perceptions, those kinds of things. So I want to lay the sort of foundation in terms of who you are when it comes to hunting. So I've got a couple of questions that I want to ask you specifically. Um, and I will be honest, when I watched the film and I watched the trailer, I was... I got a little upset from my perspective, right? From the hunting perspective, because I was like, damn it, man, that's, that's not us. Okay. That's not me. Um, and the perception and the generalization essentially just got placed on me that I'm these, I'm this individual, right? Um, so let me ask this. You, you mentioned in your intro, you do not hunt correct that's correct okay are you pro hunting or anti-hunting so that is a great question and here's my answer i am pro hunting under the ethical conditions that you know it needs to be revised a bit but that follows the north american model for conservation and i really want to lay that groundwork off the bat early on in this conversation i am 100% not anti-hunting, not anti-guns. I am not that. What I am anti is indiscriminate sport killing that is hidden behind multiple layers of wildlife management that is really only benefiting a niche community for the commerce and for the sport killing of important predators that our ecosystems depend on. And what I'm specifically talking about is wildlife killing contests. You know, I work with hunters. I, some of my best friends are hunters. Like I told you earlier, I spear fish. And to be 100% honest with you, and you know, maybe this is for your community, my community might, you know, throw me under the bus for this, but I'm interested in learning how to hunt. I'm interested in, in harvesting because I am primarily a vegetarian. I don't eat red meat, but if I'm going to, to indulge in something, then I would prefer to know where it came from. And that side of hunting really interests me. Well, that's what we do. That's what Blood Origins does. As I told you, I was in Florida. I was in your backyard last week and we took a woman, a female veteran, and we, she wanted to do the same thing you did. She wanted to go from non-hunter to hunter. And she wanted to be surrounded with individuals that spoke the same language as you just articulated. This is why we do it. This is the respect we show for the animal. And here's the organic meat that comes from it, the harvest that comes from it and what, it, what good it is for your body. So I will say this before we continue. The invitation is there, Philippe. If you ever want to hunt... I am going to take you, me personally, and we will do it properly, and we'll do it with every question that you have answered, and we will film it, and we'll show the proper process. Now, we don't have to film it. I think it would be phenomenal content, because I think the understanding of why someone decides to become a hunter is critical, especially in the conversation that we're about to have because of the perceptions around who we are. Well, thank you for that invite. And don't be surprised if I take you up on it, because 
again, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, we need to understand both sides. And, and what I said earlier, I'm, I'm a big, big believer in, you know, I spent a lot of time with the Maasai in Tanzania, just outside of Arusha. And, you know, I'm working with African Wildlife Foundation and National Geographic and the preservation of lions. I was National Geographic's 2018 Big Cat Ambassador. And so I truly believe that it's important to understand all relationships uh, between animals or between, you know, wildlife and humans because we are animals. And so I thought no better place than to do that than, you know, one of the origin tales that of the Maasai and, and of the lions and this very interesting relationship that they have. And so I got to witness, you know, a hunt with them. And I even got to sacrifice a goat on my last day, drink the blood, eat raw meat. And it was, it was an experience. And it was one that, that really set a cornerstone for the rest of my life in terms of appreciating where food comes from. You know, I was bug-eyed, bushy tail, you know, fresh out of the womb when I got to go and do that. And so I was impressionable, you right. know, and, and it really dawned on me that, especially in the States, because even though I was born in Brazil, you know, I, I migrated to the States, you know, floated there on a door or whatever we did. Um, and I was detracted from this, this natural relationship with nature that I had as, as a kid and, and, you know, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, I'm pretty sure the thong was invented in Rio and it's illegal in Cleveland. So you can't talk about two more polar opposite places in the world. So I lost touch with that, you know, that rawness and that, that, that connection with nature that I was given at an early age. And so it was really spending time with the Maasai that I got to get mm -hmm. it back. And that's what made me think differently about harvesting, about food, mm -hmm. about hunting, about mm -hmm. relationship with wild animals. Mm -hmm. So when you, when you film something like a coyote killing contest, <clears throat> when, we, 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 when we think about it from a hunting perspective, everything tied to, you know, killing an animal, a lot of people just lump into hunting. There is things called culling and there is things that need managing. Typically your, your more feral, your more nuisance species, for instance, hogs, let's use hogs as an example or nutria, right? we are indiscriminate in terms of how we kill hogs and how we kill nutria. So taking the coyote out of the picture for a second, and this is me just peeling a couple of onion layers back. Do we have the same problem that we have with predator killing that we do when we kill hogs in mass or nutria in mass? Well, that's a great question. And I think, you know, to, in the perspective that I have, I'd like to kind of talk about the Burmese python, you know, the, um, the invasive species, you know, that's kind of decimating around 90% of the mammal population yep. in the Everglades. Yep. And so it's a very interesting question to answer. And one that I believe requires a microscope and looking at specific situations, I have a hard time answering blanket questions because, sure. you know, things that apply in one situation don't apply in others. And so what, and I know it's probably, I don't want to give the political answer, but what I think 
you know, proper management strategy requires is foundation of science and data. And if you look at areas where the Burmese python or where hogs are taking over, if, you know, hogs, for example, are uprooting the soil of causing, you know, disease and spreading, um, you know, illnesses, not just to wild animals, but to livestock, then that requires management and really calculated, you know, and strong efforts of management. In the case of coyote, for example, you know, you would have to remove 70% of coyotes in a given population and keep that effort going every single year in order to properly exterminate coyotes from an area. And I would imagine that with hogs, it would be even more than that. Yeah. In the case of Burmese pythons, we're never going to get rid of them in Florida. You know, maybe the biologists won't admit it or maybe the park won't, but it's been happening for decades and they've all but taken over the Everglades. And so with some of these invasive species, like we're talking about, because the coyote is not invasive, it's native to the Americas, you know, it's native to Southwest America um, and has expanded. I think the last uh, state it conquered in, in the 48s was Delaware in 2010. Um, but I don't know if that answers your question, but I'm not opposed to wildlife management and sometimes lethal management, but I don't think it should be the first indiscriminate effort. You know, I don't think we should react to these things without understanding them mm -hmm. in a lethal and indiscriminate way, which is exactly what we're doing to predators in the United States and really have been doing for the last, you know, 200, 300 years. So I, I, what the, the whole point of my question there was about wildlife management is that wildlife needs managing. And I would argue that- But can I if, say something? And sorry, not to cut you off. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, it needs management because- we've detrimented Absolutely. environments to 1, a point percent. where we need to then step in and apply proper protocols. Wild conservation is not the management of land and animals. It's the management of people. We are the ones that need to be dialed back and to, you know, be looking at how we do things. And I, so sorry to cut you off, but I, no, I no, agree no. that it needs management, but because we've messed up, you know. Yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that every ecosystem on this planet has had some sort of indelible human fingerprint put on it. And I believe we as stewards of this land are the ones that are responsible for managing those ecosystems. And those ecosystems require different levels of management, depending on the interaction, as you mentioned, of humans in that system. So any wildlife, in my opinion, requires management, and there's a gradient to that management. And predators just happen to be one of those things that one, absolutely need management. And I don't think you would disagree there. Do you? <laughs> I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a... I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not asking you to, to support wildlife killing contests with this question. I'm just generally saying, are predators... Do predators need management? Yes or no? Okay, let me, let me answer that in the best way that I can without running around that question. I believe that yes, wildlife needs management. However, before and much before we get to that point, 
human beings need to manage the way we are living on this planet. And I know that that's not a fun conversation and I don't want to politicize or, you know, go down that route. But what I mean by that, and again, it's the same way, you know, in terms of predator management, why I believe that lethal indiscriminate killing shouldn't be the first reaction. I think before animals require management, we need to ask ourselves if what we're doing is working and how can we change that in order to benefit not just ourselves, but the ecology around us. And what I mean by that is if you, you know, are familiar with this term in finance is called sunk cost fallacy, right? The idea that we- well, I'm not an accountant. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just not speaking my language anymore. <laughs> Neither do I. I mean, I, you know, if you want to keep your kids off drugs, get them into camera gear or guns, apparently, and then they won't have any money left over for Absolutely. anything else. So I'm not an accountant, but I just, I'm a fan of this one, you know, this one theory, the sunk cost fallacy. And I, I, I hardwire human beings in the same light and that we continue to invest in a broken system because we've invested and we feel like it's too difficult to turn around and ask ourselves, what are we doing to promote problems rather than what are the animals doing to promote problems? So before I would start to go down the, the route of managing wildlife and ecosystems, I think the most critical and the most successful step would be to ask ourselves, what are we doing to promote this issue? Because in the case of coyotes specifically in their expansion across America, you know, we, we did them a favor. Coyotes expanded not because they were going to, but because, you know, they grew, they evolved over the course of millions of years next to apex predators like bears, pumas, wolves. Right. And, you know, there's around 6,000 gray wolves remaining in the lower 48s. And we've clear cut the land and created ecosystems that favor the coyote. Right. So we've promoted their expansion. So before, so again, to answer your question, I'm a little ADD and sorry for the ramble. But again, before we start to look at what can we do to control the coyote, what can we do to control ourselves as a species? Yeah, but to me, that's, that's a viewpoint that is, hey, we have a problem on our hands right now because of, yes, let's, absolutely, humans caused the problem, right? There is no wolf in the landscape to manage coyotes, i.e. coyote is the apex predator right now. And as such, it has no control. And the environments that humans have created for it, most, more often than not, more urban interface, rural interface environments have made it a very successful predator in that environment which means that its numbers are going up, which also means because a human population is also burgeoning in the United States, you're having increased human wildlife conflict. And so you're absolutely right. You can attack the problem from both sides. You can attack the problem from a human perspective. To me, my, my, my thought pattern there is that is, that is tough. Right. That's, Absolutely. that's political. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's political. That's like getting everyone on the same page. My perspective is we have an animal that we can control, that we can manage. And the debate that we're about to have or we're in already is what does that gradient of management look like? Right. To me, that's where I can see more reality in that in that endeavor. Don't get me wrong. I would be all for what you're proposing, but in the it's not realistic, in my opinion. But but in see, and this is why again, I I think that 
we're not having the real conversations because I don't want to turn this conversation around. We're going to stick on the topic here, but you know, just after this, <laughs> after this chapter, um, for instance, the USDA, and this is not coming from me. And if every, anybody wants to Google this, the USDA, you know, came out with a statement saying that all predators, not just coyotes, but wolves, pumas, bobcats, bears, everything, dogs included, they included in that. All predators combined on an annual basis in the United States are responsible for less than 1% of livestock predation and loss, meaning that most of that is coming from birth malfunctions, from disease, from climate, from you know, any, from weather, they put weather in there, you know, any number of circumstances um, add up to an insane degree of more, you know, livestock loss, therefore financial loss for, you know, farmers and, and for people in ag than these predators. So when I start to look at that, and then when I also look at the fact that, again, we've clear cut the habitat, we've promoted coyote expansion. We're not going to control the coyote. The coyote is one of these gotcha animals. You know, I'm a, do you dive? Do you spearfish? Unfortunately, I get like really bad seasick. I really would okay. love to. I okay, really I'll would love to, to spearfish. I'll I take really you to flat to. calm water. And, and look, if, if I decide to take you up on hunting, then I'm going to take you up and put you in front of a 15 foot tiger shark and it's going to rock your world. Um, but the, the coyote is kind of one of these gotcha animals. And what I mean by gotcha is it reminds me a lot of the jellyfish because fishing the high seas is an insanely, you know, unethical and unvaluable, you know, in terms of cost economic, it, you don't get the output for the time and effort that you put into it. And why I'm bringing that up is because a lot of species of jellyfish one of the species preservation tactics that they have right before they're killed, they spawn and they spawn thousands, you know, thousands of offspring. And so a lot of Japanese fishermen and Chinese fishermen, Taiwanese fishermen, you know, they conducted all these reports where all they were bringing up was jellyfish. And after a 20 year study, people realized, you know, this is a colleague of mine, Enrique Sala is working on the high seas fisheries that by hacking up and killing these jellyfish, you're actually promoting more jellyfish. The coyote is the jellyfish of the land in the sense that, you know, it has a fish infusion adaptation, meaning that it can thrive as a single or pack animal, meaning that if they find that, you know, if it's beneficial to, to, you know, disperse, divide and conquer, they can do that or come together and to take down larger prey, they can do that. You know, they're one of a few mammals along with human beings that have that adaptation. They can also double their litter size when they're facing persecution. So they can go from having three or four to seven or eight. And on top of that, typically within the social confines of a coyote, it's only the alphas that mate. So when you have indiscriminate killing and when you just shoot up everything, you know, the, it's estimated in wildlife services kills thousands of coyotes a year in between these wildlife killing contests. It's estimated that we kill about a half a million coyotes a year. That's one coyote a minute in the United States. Yet they've crossed the Panama Canal. They're in Alaska. They're in Canada. They're making their way to Brazil. We're not controlling the coyote. They thrive as we thrive. 
because they feed on the things mm -hmm. that we feed on, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there's an urban coyote project in Austin, one of the biologists that was in our film and, you know, they estimated through, you know, the, the scat fees, the scat samples of the coyote that meat makes up for an insignificant amount of their diet. They can feed on garbage. They can feed on berries. They can feed on twigs and, you know, even in the case of uh, uh, the recent events in the DNR in Wisconsin looked into um, the claims that wolves kill domestic animals, right? And they looked into that in an overwhelming majority of the dogs killed by wolves in the state of Wisconsin are hunting hounds. So we really have to look at the science. We have to look at where the sources are coming from and what we're capable of doing in terms of managing these predators. because we can't manage coyotes. There's, there's, forget about that. And, and um, if you get a chance, and I know you're a big reader and actually thanks to your podcast, I'm reading um, uh, Monsters, Monsters oh of God. Oh my gosh, how good is that book? Fascinating, fascinating, amazing book. And, and I, I fell in love with it at, like from the get-go. And so the coyote is, if we zoo up everything like they predict in what I think it was 2150, the coyote is gonna be the only predatory mammal running around. And really the only answer for managing it, and I know you're, I don't know, you might not like this, but it's reintroduce coyotes or wolves, reintroduce pumas, reintroduce bears. You know, in Lamar Valley in Yellowstone, when they reintroduced the, the wolves in 1995, the, the population of coyotes dropped by 50% in three years. Yeah. Why? Because these mesopredators unchecked by the, by the predators that evolved over millions of years of giving them persecution, den robbing, destroying them. They don't have that anymore. You know, they're, they're up against us. And honestly, biologically speaking, we're not as advanced. We're not as conditioned as the, the apex predators when it comes to understanding the land. We've got no chance against coyotes. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, you said a lot, and I'm going to try and. I know. I'm back. sorry. I'm, no, I'm you're good. Cool. <laughs> you're good. Because I want to. I want you to speak. That's the whole point of this podcast. Uh, I do want to refute a couple of things. Okay. The USDA has put out reports uh, that say what you say, but they've also said they've also put out some very regional reports that show 40 to 50 percent calf and cattle mortality due to coyotes. And so mm -hmm. there are regional areas in which coyotes do do a significant amount of predation on agriculture and to the whole you know coyote being the the gotcha animal that's absolutely correct you know i think it's norton in the 70s you know showed for the first time ever that coyotes are this, this density dependent life cycle strategist right and i love the i always use the term they're the they have adapted to persecution, like you say, in that yeah. they, cre they create litter sizes based on the density of coyotes on the landscape. Lots of coyotes on the landscape, small litter sizes. With no coyotes on the landscape, makes sense. There's lots of resources, lots of things to eat. And so the mother has a good fecundity and it can produce a lot more litters. And yes, coyotes are driven by alpha males and alpha females that do self-regulate those coyote populations by taking out other litters because they are the ones that want their genetics to move forward in the population. I will say this, and you don't know this, but I've spoken to a lot of people that were in your film. Awesome. I, I got all their phone numbers and I called them all. Awesome. And one of the individuals that I had a very good conversation with was Grant Giles mm -hmm. and his dad. I didn't speak with his dad. I spoke with him and, and, uh, 
he had very complimentary things to say about you, um, about who you were and, and going around with him. And I'll say this, he was quite disappointed in the film because he felt like he told you exactly how they managed coyotes, which was very individualistic, very concentrated to the animals that were taking the economic, that they were taking economic losses on. And I think that that's something that we always have to remember is that there are humans in these landscapes that have to eke out a living and agriculture and cattle is one of those livings and predators do have a role in those economic losses. And so they are more, you know, they're in their right to defend their economics, right? It's like, you know, protecting your house, you know, protecting your business. This is their business. This is their assets. But I'll say this. I didn't ask Grant the question. But if you ask, you asked me, the, you didn't ask me the question, but I'll answer it as a question. Do I want more wolves, bears, pumas on the landscape? My answer is yes. Because to me, that's a better ecosystem. That's a healthier ecosystem. That's more biodiversity. However, we're going to manage those predators just like we manage any others. But I do recognize that those alpha predators are missing in terms of coyote management. The other thing that I think is worth a discussion is science is king. I'm a scientist. You're a scientist. But there's something to be said about anecdotal evidence, which is the individual, right? The individual farmer, like the Giles family, that says, look, when we take out a couple of coyotes every year on our farm, our calving predation goes from 36% to 9%. To me, or like me, here locally, here in Mississippi, I take my boys trapping. We trap coyotes, we trap bobcats, we trap raccoons, and we trap possums. Because the value species that we're after are ground nesting birds like quail and turkey. To me, that is something that I see a response. Me trap, I trap two, three, four years. I'm not taking out 75% of the population. I'm just depressing it slightly. And I see a response in the, in the turkey numbers. I see a response in the quail numbers just based on what I see in the landscape. So to me, that there is, there is value in management of these predators on an individual regional specific and temporal specific basis because of the depredation that they have on, 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 on economics tied to value assets of wildlife. I won't get into the whole white-tailed deer fawn mm -hmm. Cody depredation. Um, the other thing you need to know is that my supervisor, my boss, not my supervisor, my boss, when I was a wildlife professor at Mississippi State, it's a guy called Dr. Bruce Leopold. Bruce is the number one carnivore ecologist in the entire country, if not world. And he's of the same mindset. It's like you've got to manage, not on the, sorry, he's of the same mindset of both you and I. Because you can't, there's nothing you can do to coyotes in terms of a management. The idea of holding a population, he, he said the same thing you did. You need to take out 75% of coyotes for eight to nine years for you to have an effect on the population. 
to re to really really reduce that population now again yeah. that wouldn't be good because then what and, and and i think it was the hankin study there's a hankin study in like 1980 and 1990 that had a block design of predator removal one block yeah. no predators removed one block no, untouched and yeah. the biodiversity of the small mammal community was much higher in areas where predation management was very very low if you know versus where yeah. it was really high and taken out where two small mammal species over over sort of overwhelmed everything so there's yeah. a balance what i'm trying to say is i i believe we need balance and yeah. predator management is part of that balance well I, I I agree with you there, and and first of all, and and we're both man. I feel like this could be a this could be a series. I think between us, and so let me let me try to unpack that first. Let me let me say, and I don't claim to be a scientist because even though I studied, you know, and and I I went through the biology track, I I didn't finish my dissertation because I strongly believe, and in my case, I had a lot more impact of showing people images. And it was in the case of trying to get biology friends out into, you know, the prairie to catch gators and snakes and see what I was seeing. And they were like, we don't give a shit. Like we're, you know, we're lab coats. And I was, and then I would show them photos and I could get them out. So I went down that track because I felt like I could have more impact. But in the case of, you know, the Giles family, let, let me go back to that really quickly. Um, one, so, so what you brought up in the beginning of that statement is exactly what I'm saying. You know, as a whole, less than 1% of, of U.S. livestock is, is predated on by, by predators. However, to your point, there are regions. And that's why, again, to my point that I said earlier, I believe that hunting and that wildlife management is, is when done well is necessary in regions. Because it's also a matter of, you know, you don't indiscriminately kill. And even the Giles will tell you that, you know, they've had bounties, they've had predator hunting contests on their property, and they got rid of both of those because they felt like it didn't work. That's correct. And you have to target individual problematic animals. And it's something that Dan Flores lays out in Coyote America. And I mean, this guy can, man, you should have him on your podcast. Like he's working on a new book right now, just a brilliant human being. Like when he opens his mouth, you know, the star spangled banner shoots out in the form of an electric guitar. Like this guy, I, I'd imagine he would rip off his button shirt and he would have chest hair painted in red, white, and blue. Like he's just, he's a badass. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So anyways, as he lays out in Coyote America, you know, he talks about, man, I just lost what I was going to say. No, no. So as he lays out in, in um, Coyote America, you know, you have these problematic animals, the same as you do in society, right? About 95% of human beings are well-behaved constructs of society. Same applies for wildlife. However, when you have indiscriminate killing of animals, when you target coyotes, you know, and just try to wipe them all out, what you're doing is you're removing a mostly good population and again, alpha mating individuals. And what then happens is younger coyotes, sub-adults will start to mate. And when they do that, they didn't have the proper teachings of an alpha to teach them how to hunt, how to mouse, how to, you know, what nutrients in what situation work. And so they go after easy prey. And it hurts me a little bit that the Giles were let down because I will say I, and I, you know, I'm sure if you talk to the hunters, they will completely disagree with me in the film, but I 100% approach this from a middle of the road. Let me learn as much as I can about this, 
you know, topic that is wildlife killing contest. But I have to tell you, and this is coming from every single fiber of my being, that after experiencing multiple, I don't know how many tournaments across many states, talking to legislators, talking to landowners, talking to hunters, talking to scientists, these practices are 100% the most brutal, barbaric practice that I can possibly imagine. And on top of that, gives the hunting community a bad name. And why I feel like hunters haven't spoken out against it is like you said when we started talking, you got upset because you said, this isn't me, right? And so there's that dilemma that you must be facing. Well, if I speak out against this, then am I speaking out against hunting in general? Because if people ban this, then are they going to come for trapping? Are they going to come for trophy? Are they going to come for my deer season? Are they going to come for predators in general, right? There's always that dilemma. However, I feel like just as is laid out in the book, 95% of us are decent human beings. We need to have conversations like we're having now and then reach somewhere in the middle that works for everyone. And killing contests to satisfy a niche community simply isn't the case. So what I'm getting at is I went from a journalistic bipartisan approach to having witnessed these things and come to the understanding like these absolutely need to go. It doesn't give the hunting community a good name. It doesn't do anything in terms of wildlife management. It's sport killing. And you know, it's just a bunch of guys getting their rocks off. It's, it's has no place in modern society. So I think the Giles family was upset because of the light that they got painted in, in that um, when his father held up the picture and it got cut off in the film, he was like, no, my dad had a lot more to say that, no, this isn't us, right? And that wasn't added in the film. And, and I understand from a content perspective and a messaging perspective and a storytelling perspective, you had an, an idea of what you wanted to say, right? And that's just your prerogative as the director. And The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, Almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. As the, as the producer, but they felt like, like, for instance, if there were 50 foxes, and I think that was the picture, are you good with this or not? And his answer was no, but... If there were 50 foxes on someone's property, they've got a problem. They've got a fox problem. And so there has to be some manage. Nobody's obviously managed that prop property. So I think that was the issue that the Giles family had was that they, yeah. were, they just felt like they were lumped in with everything. And the reason that I... Well, sorry, I, and just, ahead, just really quickly, and, and I posted that photo today on Instagram, and the photo that you were talking about in particular, there was actually, I think... 126 animals in that photo so it wasn't just 50 foxes it, one team killed 126 animals and to give you perspective there were 718 teams that signed up for that tournament that weekend and it was killed they were killed across multiple properties not just one property so why we made that edit decision is yes he was right if a property had that many foxes they would be overpopulated but there weren't that many foxes in one area. That was across, I think, three or four 
different places that that particular team killed that many animals. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the imagery, but then I want to move back a little bit to yep. the actual practice. So obviously I build a lot of content. There was some content in the trailer that definitely were not tied to the killing contests. There was the snowmobile running over the coyote. There's the guy like slamming the coyote up against those. Those were not images that came from predator killing contests. So those were sensationalist pieces that were added in there to elevate the story. So, and, and I appreciate you bringing that up actually, because it's something that I'm working with Senator Mike Phillips in Montana and uh, Doug Smith, you know, who were integral in reintroducing the wolves into Yellowstone. And what you're talking about in particular is often referred to as whacking. So there are specific tournaments where you can kill the animal by any means, and it is legal to run over wolves and coyotes and bobcats. You don't even have to have a gun. You don't have to have a hunting license. And it's something that was proposed by Senator Mike Phillips of Montana and actually got shut down. So the reason that we included those images in the film is because what I want to speak to on a larger narrative is the relationship that we have with predators and to show that this type of stuff is happening. And it's that mentality that is promoting people Mm -hmm. to go out and kill as many animals as possible. Mm -hmm. Because the same people that are doing these tournaments are the same people that are going out and running over wolves, coyotes, and bobcats. Legally, I must say. So you're absolutely right from a content perspective that those shots weren't taken from a contest specifically, but what the larger narrative is with this mentality is just kill anything by any means necessary. It doesn't matter. And again, I'm a firm believer that, you know, things like the North American model of conservation were set up for a reason. Those don't apply or follow the ethics of hunting in any regard. What about the idea that you know, you see a lot of, obviously, there's obviously a lot of human wildlife interactions, lots of roadkill, lots of coyotes being killed in the roads, lots of bobcats being, lots of everything, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, as we said, predator killing contests, predator management, roadkills, the coyote population is still expanding. Yeah. Still increasing, still entering into neighborhoods. So maybe this is an off-the-wall question, but... Hey, let's get off the wall, man. (laughs) Does it really matter then? (laughs) Does it? Man, I... Okay, let me answer that question. Your reaction was like, whoa. I will give you a personal answer, an emotional one, and then I'll try to give you a practical one. Right. So now, B, let me before you say that. Yeah. this is just me playing no, great question. and poking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, okay, the emotional response is that, you know, I you said let's get off the wall, so you started it. So don't blame me. So no, if, I, if I go, go back, okay. So I was raised by a single mother as an illegal immigrant in poverty in Cleveland. And the only thing that 
essentially kept me alive in a very literal and metaphorical sense was the deep and profound connection I felt with wildlife. Why? Because a lot of people say that animals are voiceless, and I don't agree with that statement whatsoever. They speak. It's just that we choose not to listen. And I, as an illegal immigrant, you know, for a certain amount of time, raised in poverty by a single mother, felt like I too had a voice and that people weren't listening. So the connection that I built with wildlife and with animals very much gave me a deep sense of meaning. And by, you know, concluding myself to nature, I felt a very sense of place in this world. Therefore, a, a responsibility to protect it. And that's the emotional answer. And I love animals from herds, from flocks, from packs, from, you know, clans, from everything down to an individual animal. I want to know what that singular bobcat, what his or her life story is, and the drama that plays out. I give a shit. Whether I can't help that, but that's who I am. So I have an attachment with wildlife and with nature in a deep and profound way. And so to me on a personal level, it does matter. And on a Let very- Let me stop you there. Let me stop yeah. you there and say, thank you. I really love that answer. Thank you. I, I guess we're getting into mother goose. What are you drinking there? Are you drinking your tea and honey that everybody's giving you shit for? Or? Yeah, no, not tea and honey. This is that's only my <laughs> this is my whiskey drink at night. Oh man, maybe Should I should have... crack. Should I crack a beer? Should we really get into that? <laughs> um, okay, so that's my emotional answer. Is yes to me. Every single individual animal <laughs> matters, and on the practical side, what I have a very hard time with as a conservationist is injustice and greenwashing, and so it does matter, even though there's this myriad of other problems as you brought up happening road kills and in the case of florida right you know we've done an incredible job of protecting you know the or trying to protect the panther and my friends at path of the panther carlton ward tori linder you know are promoting this wild preservation space using the pat the panther as an ambassador and a lot of people say we got to stop the hunting it's not the hunting it's road kills you know so again i i like to speak science and truth when, when we talk about these things, people always blame the hunters in, in Florida for the panther. It's, it's the road kills, which is why, you know, they created tunnels and why we're promoting these fenced areas in yep. certain places. And so if we don't speak truth in science and conduct ourselves in a way as 8 billion human beings on this planet and don't give a shit about the fact that our relationship with nature is dwindling down a path where we feel like we can do whatever the hell we want, whenever the hell we want. In the case of wildlife killing contests that aren't backed by science, that don't work, and that aren't helping you know, farmers, maybe in certain tiny regions, but as a whole, have no place in, in proper management strategy. It does matter because we, we don't open up the door for, you know, like wildlife genocide, we're, we're living it. And so it's not just the fact that it isn't working as a wildlife strategy, but it's the fact that it's growing as a sport immensely. And now sponsors like Fox Pro and like other, you know, calling companies are getting behind it, throwing big money at it, 
You know, I believe the West Texas Big Bobcat payout, you know, was recently over 100,000. I think the winning team when I was there two years ago got like 54,000. I have but a didn't very the money hard... come from the entry fees. It did didn't come, come from, from the sponsors. It came from the individual teams, and the chance of you winning that. Oh, it's minimal. Bobcat, no, it, the, but the chance of you like it's not like you can go scout out the biggest bobcat. It's almost by no, chance. No. It's almost by random that you you're going to potentially win fifty thousand. You're not cheating. Even if I yeah. kill one one bobcat, right? Yeah, but 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 what I'm getting at is it's gotten to a point where when you involve commerce in something as delicate as wildlife management, you've really missed the mark. And what I mean by that is, yes, the payout is paid by the entrance fee. However, prizes are given away at almost every single, I would say every tournament of like the 30-something tournaments I went to, there were prizes given away. And they were sponsored and promoted by these, you know, these, these predator calls. And so the second that you start to put a commercial, you know, fabrication on, on wildlife management, then you completely miss the point and you attract an entirely different audience that doesn't give a shit about helping farmers and ranchers in wildlife management. They only care about competition, about sport, you know, you go to these tournaments and they lay out the kills in front of the truck and just, you know, sit there as if like, yep, these are my trophies. It's not this like camaraderie, like, you know, like, like, did you talk to this farmer? Did you talk to this? It's what calls are you using? What lasers are you using? What scope are you, you know, and I get that world because I come from the film world. So it's what lenses, what cameras, what new technology. And I know it's boys being boys. It's us getting our rocks off on like, yeah, let's throw gear and technology and, you know, Know, like the, the the new digital age at these things and you lose you lose the fabric of conservation and of wildlife management and i don't like to gamble animals lives i don't like to gamble biodiversity and screw up you know trophic cascade in the process it's not a justifiable means so for me it does matter as much as road kills it does matter as much as you know habitat loss because mm-hmm. it all reflects on our relationship with nature and the disconnect that is that is growing between so, human beings and in the planet so let me break down because this is where i wanted to uh one thing you mentioned before and you, you just touched on it a couple of things you talked about these coyote killing contests predator killing contests being barbaric being unethical you know i think you had another adjective in there um and then now you talked about, again, you talked about ethics and people and questionable character and stuff like that. So let me break down a couple of things and see where you stand here. Yeah, I, I totally, I, I think that competition, money in any endeavor, not just hunting, could be a sport, could be a treasure hunt. I don't think it, it, it causes the right individuals to change their ethics but rather it brings out individuals with questionable ethics does that make sense you, that's you, a that's a great i would agree with that assessment that's a great way of looking at it and so that's where again that's where why i started the way that i started is that those people who do it from a conservation perspective do it because it's of, of a camaraderie like hey me and my buddy we're going to make a team and we're going to go out and we're going to spend some quality time together yeah we may kill five or six coyotes um to me but it's tied to the management right it's not the competition that's driving them though they are entering a competition because as i said it's a chance deal right i'm going to put 250 dollars in as a team 
if I happen to kill a bobcat, just one, and it happens to be the heaviest, by chance, I can win $50,000. That's a lot of money to someone in rural Texas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I mean, what are the odds that we're going to help out this poor farmer, this individual in rural Texas? And is that worth condoning indiscriminate killing of wildlife? I'm sorry. Okay, so, and, so, and, no, no, that's okay. That's okay. Let me, yeah, let me and, and I'm up. sorry to, I'm sorry to say, but, and, and I'm also, you know, maybe a little bit cynical or uh, what's the right word let me let me phrase this correctly or try so i, I think cynical's right or jaded maybe based on what i'm a seeing. little bit I, I i don't believe in greenwashing or putting up you know this like poor individual that define needs greenwashing. define greenwashing for folks okay so greenwashing is what these this niche community of wildlife killing contestants or these predator you know killers are doing when they say that we're helping farmers, we are benefiting, you know, the, the livestock industry, we're benefiting agriculture, we're doing this to help people. That is the ultimate number one thing that they will always say. And to give you a perspective, and I went out on a couple of hunts, and let me tell you in your audience, like right now, that the reason, so this might sound crazy, I'm sure these guys hate my guts and I don't blame them, but I like hunters. I get along. I even got along with these, you know, predator killing contestants, these wildlife killing contestants. We shot the shit. We made jokes. It was a couple of boys, you know, driving. Other than the fact that they were mauling animals and just slaughtering them, you know, other than that, I got along with them. And so the reason I chose to not entirely throw them under the bus is because I don't believe that attacking individuals is the right thing to do because it pulls away from what the ultimate goal is. And my goal is to ban these wildlife killing contests. But I can assure you and everybody listening to this, I made these people on the greater scale, not just the hunters I went out with, look like saints compared to what's actually happening. And people might have a hard time digesting this and I've been kind of waiting to put this out there. But what is actually happening in these contests in terms of the amount killed is not represented at these tournaments. And what I mean by that is if your goal is to kill as many as possible, right? And you have to qualify a certain amount of like coyotes, foxes before in the case of big bobcat, you can claim your bobcat. So they're actually promoting you to go and kill coyotes, foxes, you know, even though it's the big bobcat contest, it, it doesn't matter. It's just go kill five or 10 of this in order to qualify your trophy. And so when I followed around a couple of the hunters, number one, when they talked to the farmers and I have this on tape, they said, here's where we're having predation. Here's where we're having problems. And they said, okay, let's go way over here because I know we're not going to get our foxes that we need to qualify where they're having the problems. Number one, they're not targeting the problem areas. Number two, if people get bored at these contests, they just start to shoot things to shoot things. Protect, federally protected species like caracaras, like night jars, animals are looked at as target practice. And I have the footage. I didn't release it because I don't believe in attacking individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Number three, and, and what's the worst thing is because it's a numbers game and I have the footage to back this up, when some people would shoot animals, if they don't collect the animal within three to five minutes, then they move on. 
because they know that if they hip shot it or if they gut shot it or if they didn't get a clean kill, it's going to bleed out over a mile. Are you going to go chase that animal for a mile in the dark or look for a blood trail? No, they look for three or five minutes and then they call and they get another one. So it absolutely promotes this, this bloodlust, this sport kill. And there were animals shot outside of season, which I don't want to have to release the footage of, but it's not at all this. And that's the majority of what's happening here because it does get competitive and it does become about the money, not in the sense that they think they have a practical chance mm -hmm. of winning, but when you sign up for these things over and over again, and there's, you know, more or less like the same faces at these tournaments, I saw mostly same faces at the big tournaments and especially the big Bobcat one. Again, there were 718 teams to the one I signed up for. You think these people aren't, competitive in their own right. I'm a photographer. I'm a filmmaker. I'm looking at the images I get of sharks, of lions, of jaguars, and comparing it, you know, to my colleagues. These people, when they lay out their kills, they're doing the same thing. We are promoting bloodlust and sport killing and over, I don't even want to call it harvest, but over killing by conducting these tournaments. So let me, um, let me break down something for you. And I this is how I approach it. Is the, this tied to wildlife management laws, is it legal to kill a coyote? The answer is yes. By any means necessary, yes. I don't know. I, I don't know the laws, so I can't, I can't, like in Mississippi, I don't know if that is the, written as such, but it is okay. legal to kill a coyote. I worked on a film called Lions of West Texas with Ben Masters, if you have like seven to 10 minutes. And it's legal to snare a puma all year round, and you don't even have to check the traps. That's not trapping. Do you check your traps? Of course. Every 24 course. hours. Yeah. So, again, that's where some of the wildlife laws we're dealing with in places, you know. Yeah. And, and it, you know, all of this comes down to questionable ethics. Okay. Number two, is, it, is there a bag limit on coyotes? The answer is no. So from a legal perspective, you can shoot coyotes and there is no bag limit. So then scenario number, not scenario, but point number three is if I decided with a buddy of mine, and this is where it comes in, this is where it's sort of gray, that I enjoy predator hunting, I enjoy the camaraderie of it, I enjoy the taking of that wildlife, I'm going to use the skin, I'm going to pelt it out the whole kit, right? And we go out weekend A, and we kill five coyotes. Perfectly legal. Perfectly in the, in the realms of what I'm allowed to do. Not a killing contest. Just predator management. And this next weekend, weekend B, I do the same thing. I kill the same amount of coyotes. But I entered into a contest to do it. Are both scenarios wrong or is only one wrong in your eyes? I mean, in my opinion, and again, I'll, I'll try to give you, you know, because I try to now it, at this point in my life, separate my emotions from the practicality or from the science-based, sure, sure. you know, answer. So number one, my emotional answer, my opinion is that both are wrong unless if you feel like you've done the science and you've, you know, put in time to investigating, is there predation happening in this area? Am I helping somebody out by doing this? 
that's my opinion is I don't kill to kill. And the other thing to remember is that, you know, the fur argument in these contests is completely out the window. And I have the fur, Absolutely. you know, the, the fur buyers on, on camera saying that, you know, maybe they take a couple at each tournament because really nobody's killing with a clean shot in mind. You know, they're just killing to kill. And, and also when you have that many kills, the buyer dictates the market, not the seller. So really, you know, what, 20 bucks an animal, 10 bucks an animal at some, some of these tournaments. So my emotional answer in my personal opinion is yes, they're both wrong because I don't believe in killing to kill. Now, if you were to change out coyote and, and as a hunter, say you went out and killed, you know, a mule deer or whitetail or turkey during season and you harvested it, I don't have a problem with that. You provided for yourself, which is significantly better than going to the grocery store and buying a GMO filled piece of steak, right? I prefer that people ethically hunt during season and provide for themselves and go to the grocery store even. So, but isn't it ethical to hunt if, if it's legal, if coyote no, it's is, not is open the entire year? Because you just couched it in seasons, right? You just couched it in, if it's in season, if it's legal, then I have no problem with it. But, but again, I, I don't am in season, I am legal, and I am taking it for a specific reason in my, con in my context. Yeah. And in that context, but again, it's just my opinion that I don't believe in killing to kill. Mm -hmm. So if you were to say you're doing something with that coyote, you're making something of it, that's mm -hmm. different. But to kill to kill... In my opinion, no, I don't think that's right. And that's on the emotional answer. And again, on the practical answer, I would say that, you know, unless if you know that individual coyote, you might be killing an alpha, you might be promoting the expansion, you know, you might be disrupting the ecology of that area by not taking the time to understand which individuals you are killing. I would imagine when you set out to kill something or when you harvest a, a buck, you set out game trap game trap cameras you know you 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 research the area you you look at individual animals and ask yourself what what member of society am i taking from this group honestly some a lot of hunters do that absolutely so that they can manage the herd appropriately i don't use cameras and whatnot i just it's based on age on the hoof i want to take a mature animal doesn't matter what it looks like I'm just interested in a mature animal because I want a growing population, a sustainable population that, you know, is healthy, is intact, and is functioning correctly. Yeah. So, so on the person, so on your personal side, it's different from the context that you gave because it doesn't sound like, correct me if I'm wrong, you would just go out and kill five coyotes to kill five coyotes or to hang well, out. Well, we would be or taking out, we would be taking out coyotes. And here's, I think, I, I, I will, I will press you back and say, I think you, you said to me that you're only okay if someone kills a coyote, if they use something from it. I think you said earlier, you'd be okay. Like the Giles family example, that if they knew that there were problem coyotes affecting their livestock, you would be okay with that. If lethal wasn't the first response. What would be the first response? What would be a different response in that scenario? And like in the cattle, let's use the agricultural cattle yeah. depredation scenario. Yeah. yeah, well, that's okay. So I'm glad you brought that up. And, and here's the thing, and I know I'm going to piss off a lot of people, but 
I have no, I understand that we need to feed people. I understand that obviously that that's a way of life. And with what, almost 400 million people, let's use the United States, for example, in, in this, this part of the discussion. The United States has around 400 million people. And 330. 330? Okay, mm -hmm. I saw 386. I saw, okay, let's go with your, your mm -hmm. assessment, Three, 330. So 47, about 47% of US land is agriculture, 47%. Of that 47%, about 70% is livestock, is beef, cattle. And it is the most responsible industry for greenhouse gases and methane on our planet. Oh, dude, you're about to set us off on a rabbit hole. I, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I know. And I don't wanna go down that rabbit hole too much, but what I'm getting at, what I'm getting at is I live in a place like Costa Rica, I'm from Brazil, and what I'm seeing in Costa Rica, for example, is these hedge fund companies and places like Dole, you know, that are largely responsible for pineapple, for palm oil plantations, where they hire migrant workers undocumented and the money goes back to the states. In my opinion, and in a lot of conservationist opinion, we are destroying the planet at the cost of feeding ourselves. And so why I don't think that the agriculture industry should be looked at as like this holy grail is one, because the day of the modern working class, hardworking individual farmer trying to take care of his family is over. Yes, that exists, but it's mostly commercialism and it's mostly, you know, high production scale that is happening in the United States. And I'm sure the farmers can tell you, and this is something that I learned from the Giles family, the biggest pushback is from commercial farming and from larger operations, not even from predators. It's from them being squeezed out by the bigger guy. So let me ask you this, actually, let me press back on your press back. How is it and why is it that we only subsidize the cost of living when it comes to wildlife for the agriculture industry? How come when a jaguar is poached, how come when a wolf is killed, how come when that wolf got killed outside of Yellowstone, you know, by the, by the gas station owner, how come nobody called me up and was like, hey, here's your check for $500? That's my livelihood. That's the way I take care of my family and friends. You know, I'm an, I'm an immigrant that made five people legal in this country, doctors, lawyers, you know, nurses at the VA, all outstanding citizens. Nobody calls me when, when, when a Kara Kara gets shot out of the sky or when a wolf gets taken out and says, hey, here's your subsidy. Yeah, we you only can't... subsidize the agriculture industry for the sake of biodiversity loss. Yeah, well, it... Uh... There's so many tentacles to that. My, my simple answer is this. But would you that agree to that larger spectrum? I would agree. I, I am of the opinion that subsidies occur when it comes to direct losses. So if you knew, using your example, if you knew that that specific wolf was going to be specifically directly tied to you, you've got an argument. But it wasn't. The caracara wasn't tied to you. That cow belonged to someone and it had a direct economic loss to that animal. That is one part of the equation. The other part of subsidies comes from a human-wildlife conflict perspective. And as you know, in Africa, you have to put a greater value on the economic asset that you have on the landscape for it to remain and for someone to 
be willing to live with it. And okay. so a farmer that has an economic asset that gets taken out by wolves, you're going to subsidize that farmer because you want wolves on the landscape. If you don't subsidize that farmer, he's going to take business into his own hands. And that's not what we want. Right. And I will agree with you in the exception that regardless, most people take business into their own hands. And what I mean by that is I've spent a lot of time in Ethiopia. I've been there three times, right? The Simeon Mountains where, you know, people retracted essentially because of war and, 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 you know, they entirely survive on livestock and there's government subsidies in Ethiopia. And when a farmer doesn't sell his prize cattle or doesn't sell his prize goat, what does he do? And it's, I've documented it. He throws it in front of a moving vehicle and he gets a government subsidy for it. And it's a reoccurring issue that African Wildlife Foundation is working on because these bounties and these subsidies promote bad behavior. And on top of that, I'll give you another example a little bit closer to home in the United States. I worked on this film, this short film on uh, Point Reyes National Seashore in California. Point Reyes is just this exquisite, beautiful, it's like the the cleavage of California. You know, you could just stare at it. May, okay, let me take that back. I'm going to have to it's, put freaking R-rated on this. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. Sorry, the metaphor is I'm losing, I'm losing my mind a little bit. I've been up since 4.30 in the morning, so just go with it. It's probably a good thing. Otherwise, I might be rambling a little bit more and talking a little faster. So anyways, Point Reyes, California, it's absolutely stunning. And a third, a third of the national seashore is taken up by agriculture. And what's happening now is they've already proposed a bill and it's already going to come up again where they want to call the native and endemic tule elk. There's about 600 tule elk left in, in, in Point Reyes National Seashore. And they want to kill the remaining elk to make room for more cows and chickens in a national seashore. Now, if you drive in Marin County, the entire drive is dairy. Mm -hmm. The entire landscape is dairy. So we set aside these national parks and these national seashores and, and these lands, not because they're prized possessions. You know, let's not mistake that. Yellowstone isn't the best habitat for these animals. It's just the habitat that we set aside because it didn't conflict with agriculture. The same thing is happening in Point Reyes National Seashore. And the farmers, they don't pay the taxes. You know, some of them make over $14 million a year. They don't pay for the roads. And they took public inventory. They did a public questionnaire. And it was overwhelming. It was an over 90% and thousands of responses from people that visit Point Reyes National Seashore saying that they would rather see bobcats, coyotes, and wildlife than the dairy farmers inside the National Seashore. And on top of that, there is a very economic footprint of keeping animals alive. Yellowstone brings in over 35 million a year from wolves alive. So it's not a financial argument that we're having. And it's not one that promotes like this way of life. And that's the right way of life. It's just ingrained in the American DNA that, you know, agriculture, that livestock, we're going to protect it at all costs into our demise. Well, I think, as I said, this is a massive rabbit hole um, that we're just going to skirt around for a second. I think that there is certainly something to look at in terms of our food and our food security. I do not believe the replacement of livestock with, you know, soybean fields and monocultures and whatnot is the way forward. 
Um, I think that there is a uh, very good movement on the foot that is the sustainable farm type lifestyle. Yeah. And, and sorry, let me, let me be clear. I'm not, and I'm not saying that, and I also agree with you. What I'm saying largely is charge what something is worth, right? Like if you shrimp, it's over 90% bycatch right? When you long line, like you're, you're just decimating, you know, sea turtles, for example, are largely wiped out in, in many parts of the world because of long lines and they had to change the hooks and a lot of fishermen still aren't using them. So I'm not saying that. What I am saying is charge what something is worth. If you charge for the carbon footprint of a piece of steak, maybe we could keep these small operations alive, people like the Giles, who I respect and who I appreciate and who I would much rather buy a piece of meat from than, than a grocery store. Maybe if we charged what something is worth, then we could keep that industry alive while also dialing back. Because let's be honest, and again, this is what I'm talking about. We need to change the way that we live. We need to understand that we shouldn't, have, you're a hunter, you appreciate predators, you are a predator. You know that predators don't eat meat every day, not even the best of them. You know, maybe 20%. Uh, I, I would say the predators, and I wanted to, I, you, thank you for bringing that up. It was one thing that you mentioned earlier that piqued my interest. I would say in an urban environment, most predators do not potentially have meat access and that's why they eat a omnivorous diet a bobcat and a coyote that lives in the rural environment in the rural mississippi environment there is no doubt in my brain and i have to look at the signs so this is an assumption that they are predominantly carnivores they're predominantly meat eaters small rodents birds you name it are they insectivores Absolutely. But for the majority, I think the majority of their diet is going to be meat and insects. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also, by that token, agree that, and this is the other conversation that we need to be having, these predators are doing us a favor, right? And I'll give you an example. People hate snakes. I hike the Appalachian Trail, you know, I think 14 states that it goes across over 2,000 miles. And the one thing I constantly came across is, you know, from, from people in the areas, kill every single rattlesnake. Kill rat and I started. I'm obsessed with herpetology. I, I've been, you know, I've handled, I've handled um, fertilance vipers. I've handled mambas. I've handled, you know, rattlesnakes. I've handled cottonmouths. I'm obsessed with, with, with herpetology, and I couldn't get it in my head because I would tell people the same thing. You know, Lyme's disease. How many people do you know that have been killed or bitten by a rattlesnake? Maybe one person. You know, I don't even, I don't know what the facts are, but I would go as far as to say, I think maybe two people or less a year are killed by rattlesnakes. And those are always promoted instances. In the case of a predator like that, or even a carnivorous predator like a bobcat, they feed mostly on rodent and vermin populations, which is responsible for spreading diseases. Rattlesnakes in the case throughout Eastern US, Lyme's disease is a very real issue that can kill people. Way more people suffer from Lyme's disease than they do from rattlesnake bites. But because we hear this rattle and we think we have to kill all rattlesnakes, we're actually promoting the spreading of Lyme's disease in the Eastern US by removing the number one prey or predator for these prey species that are promoting Lyme's disease. Same as bobcats, same as coyotes, you know, like the, things like mange and, and some of the other diseases that these predators suffer from that they, people in Point Reyes claim, oh, they're spreading to our livestock. Those are human introduced. Those are introduced by dogs and from livestock 
back to you know the predator and then the livestock mm -hmm. so we're always to blame but again we don't want to have that real conversation and check our behaviors we would rather think that we can control nature let me ask this and we're getting uh we're about an hour and 15 in um would you be willing to do a, a pro hunting film one day i would let me let me think about this because i'm usually a quick responder and it's got to be a this. lot of trouble let me say this <laughs> would you be willing to do a film that shows the the positive consequence of hunting yes and again maybe the the theme here is i have an emotional response and then i have a practical response and my answer is yes emotionally because i'm curious by nature and ultimately what i think you and i i think we have a lot in common but one of the biggest things i think we have in common is we want to promote healthy ecology landscapes environments communities. and communities and i by any means necessary would love to do that and if i can learn more about the hunting community and see it as a bigger tool in conservation then i'm inquisitive and open enough to see how that could be used as a proper tool in conservation because i know that but i haven't lived it i haven't truly seen it in effect outside of of you know spending time with the maasai in tanzania um, and the practical, that's my emotional answer. And the practical answer is I would rather build more bridges in, in terms of effect and impact than create more enemies. And I truly didn't set out to make this wildlife killing contest film to make enemies or to piss people off or to even demonize people, which is again why I chose to blur the faces. I have their releases, everybody signed everything. You know, I told them who I was, they follow me on Instagram. It's not like I could keep what I was doing from people, like, you know, in every sense of the word. So the people, let me quit, and, and then, because that was one of the things I got back, because that was the first yeah. thing I asked. Everyone signed releases, everyone everybody knew what signed you were releases. doing. So what I told people is that I'm a National Geographic Explorer and I'm creating a film about wildlife killing contests. Um, did I tell people that, you know, like I'm against it or I would love to see them shut down? No, but I told people what I was doing and it took me hundreds of tries to get people to let me go out hunting with them. But you know, eventually a couple of people said yes. And so that's how we were able to, to get that content. And yes, I did get their releases because I want to do things the right way in that sense. But also I didn't, again, want to throw them under the bus and, and create some enemies. And I'm sure obviously there's a big group of people that don't like me right now and I don't blame them for that. However, I think that they don't like me because a very known, a very little known niche community was exposed for what they were doing. And they truly hid behind the fact that a lot of people don't know this is happening. And, and again, maybe I should have talked about this in the beginning, but 
wildlife killing contests are happening in, I think, exactly 43 states, and they're growing. And so when you factor in what I said earlier about all the kills not being represented and the fact that there's a lot of money coming into this and there's, you know, YouTube channels, there's podcasts about it, there's promotion behind it, maybe not the big financial payout that people want, but enough to stimulate its growth through a commerce, I think is a very real problem and we have to address it. And as the hunting community, I would love to talk to more hunters to go on hunts. And, and again, I would be open to having the conversation about, you know, creating something, a, a piece about how hunting can be used as conservation, but we really need ethical hunters to stand up and to say what you said earlier, this is not us. And this ultimately is not hunting. It's sport killing. Let me make sure that I am clear in what I said. That is not us in terms of the people who disrespect wildlife. Okay. That is not me. That is not the majority of my community. And do you feel like wildlife killing contests disrespect wildlife? I think that any imagery associated with the disrespect of wildlife, regardless of it's a wildlife killing context, whether it's someone sticking a duck bill in their mouth and biting it, sticking a duckbill in the top of a shotgun. Um, anything that, you know, shows a turkey head that has been chopped off, anything that shows our community in the light that it is not, I am not for. I use this a lot. When I see something like the imagery that you have, and it's real. You didn't make up the imagery. The people that shoot things and put it all over Instagram, blood everywhere, tongue hanging out, all the things I've already mentioned happens daily. Social media is the scourge of hunting. I ask the question, does it help? Does this help or hurt hunting? If you take a step back, and you answer that question legitimately, you should always be on the side of this is helping hunting and not hurting it. That is one of the most respectful statements I've heard come out of anyone in the hunting community. And you kind of triggered a response in that what I would love to do is address that in a film. What you just said right there. Does this, what we're doing by showing these images and by promoting this and by glamorizing, you know, like, like showing off in a way, in a sense, hurt or help hunting. And this is, let's call it real hunting, or this is ethical hunting and, and showing the difference between the two. Because again, I feel like in drawing back to your earlier question, the reason why I care, the reason why it matters when we were talking about road kills and other things is because we have to constantly, not just when it comes to hunting, but as a species, you know, if, if human beings think that this is a save the planet campaign, like I've got some fucking swampland in, 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 
you know, in, in Florida to sell you for real estate. Like this is not a save the, the, the planet or the animals campaign. This is a save the humans campaign. And, and what I mean by that is the Megalodon shark, you know, I'm obsessed with sharks. I, I live in breathe and, with and, everything. Oh my God. I don't care what it is. Is if it's a centipede, <laughs> if it's a centipede, I want to read its birth certificate. You know what Maybe I mean? It if is. it's a mosquito, I might even ask it out on a dinner. Like I, I'm obsessed with wildlife. And so the Megalodon shark is the ultimate of ultimates. In my opinion, this thing ruled for, for, you know, millions of years grew to over 60 feet and ate whales for breakfast. And it went extinct, you know, a couple million years ago. And you can find teeth over seven inches in Florida, where you just were. And what I love about holding a one pound, seven and a half inch Megalodon tooth is that it's a very real reminder that we, because we don't have another species to check ourselves, think that we are the top dog and that we can outlast nature. But if we don't check our relationship with it, then nature will do exactly to us what she did to the Megalodon shark. And people will be finding our teeth in rivers in Florida hundreds of millions of years from now, except instead of caveman drawings, it's going to be bathroom scriptures. You know, people taking a dump and saying, Billy was here. That's going to be our version. Well, isn't, that the the whole, isn't that the whole point of David Guaman's uh, sort of thesis in Monster yeah. of God? That is, we have this, this affinity to predators, alpha predators across the world, because we as a predator see them as a threat, right? They yeah. see them as the only thing on this planet that can take us out. Yeah. Well, dude, I am thoroughly, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I thoroughly am impressed by you as a, a I'll call you a young man because I'm older than you. Um, you <laughs> hey, are, but you're doing something right, man. You're, you're, you're living a good life. You are, um, you are a passionate conservationist. You have uh, a very strong ethos a strong idea of who you are and what you believe in. And we need more of those individuals. I also very much appreciate you being open to this kind of discussion because you could have easily closed yourself off and go, I'm not going to talk to this guy. This guy's the enemy. This guy's the, the, the side that I want to shut down. And I am very, very encouraged by the future with you because one, I'm going to take you hunting. Two, you're going to take me spearfishing. And three, I am, I am sold on this idea of this film that says, this is what hunting really is. And, and have as someone like you, because this is the key, for it to be unbiased, for it to come from a place of integrity, we need someone like you to film it. With someone like me, right next door to you right next to you hip to hip with you to say okay here let me show you so thank you thank you man and, and that means a lot and four i'm taking you diving with uh with tiger sharks because <laughs> we'll i know you got the small sharks first okay <laughs> but um and and honestly man and and you know I, I genuinely mean this from the bottom of my heart you know when you reached out to me and you wrote me on instagram and 
you know, I'm sure you had this emotional response to it because it did paint this bad light. But I think what needs to happen more on this planet is what's happening right now, where two people that come from, well, apparently not that big, big a difference of background because we were both born in Rio, but two people that have different backgrounds and took different paths in life are willing to sit down and again, understand that there's a lot more that that binds us that connects us that draws us together and ultimately we're all in this you know together if i win and you lose we both lose if you win and i lose we both lose we need to win we need to evolve as a species and develop our relationship with nature and each other and ourselves and i know that sounds like some you know hippie bs but but in order for us to survive as a species we need to have more conversations like we're having now so thank you for reaching out and i appreciate the extension and and yeah let's keep the conversation going cuz i think we there's will. there's a great idea and, and a great creative baby to be had there yeah we'll do it over feijoada and guarana okay <laughs> Hell yeah, Cheers, brother. Mate. Cheers, mate. All right, brother. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.